0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll. With me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the editor-in-chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hi, Bill. Hey, Ward. Starting so, f- obviously, Ukraine dominating the headlines. Uh, we've teed up a few things, both at Proceedings and US9 News. What would you draw the viewer's attention to with respect to Proceedings content relative to Ukraine?
1: Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Rear Admiral Walkendorf, Navy retired, who was the defense attaché, U.S. defense attaché in Moscow in the mid two thousands, uh, he wrote a great piece called "Truth is the best way to defeat Putin," and, um, and at that time he was calling, basically saying, you know, the best way to, for to to bring an end to this thing is to get the what's actually happening in Ukraine, the actions, the illegal actions uh, by the Russian military, uh, to the Russian people. And he, you know, he, he didn't denigrate the Russian people. He, he harkened back to some of the amazing things that the Russians have done over the years, their beautiful contributions to literature, uh, to art, to dance, to, uh, technology, to, uh, you know, scientific exploration. They beat us to space, for example, but Putin's just the wrong guy, uh, leading that country at this time. And, um, and then you know picking up on that thread although i'm sure he didn't read Abba walkendorf's piece but just echoing that same sentiment was the great great video by arnold schwarzenegger that came out yesterday where schwarzenegger harkens back to meeting a russian power lifter you know back in the 1960s when he was a young boy and just admiring him uh and and saying to the russian people and, and schwarzenegger's got a lot of fans in russia and ukraine but talking to the russian people and just saying your your government, your president is lying to you. What he's done is illegal, and uh, this is not representative of who you are as a people. It's just a really powerful video by uh, by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I thought the messaging was just absolutely spot on. So uh, I'll i pop that in the uh, in the comment too, and people can take a look at that maybe after the show. But it's just incredibly powerful messaging, in my view, perfect messaging uh, because. You know, this, the, the Russian people are, and I served as a naval attache in Russia in the mid-2000s. Zabra Wachendorf was my boss. I had wonderful interactions with individual Russians. They are proud, proud people. They do some things incredibly well. They have this unbelievable history. Uh, but what they're doing to Ukraine right now, I think, is just not in line with their values at all. And um, you know, th- I think Admiral Walkendorf was spot on that. Hey, you got to get the messaging to the Russian people so that they understand, you know, what's really happening in Ukraine and and who the aggressor was. And um, as as our boss uh, Admiral Daly, we were t- chatting about this yesterday. He said he hopes that one day he wakes up and you know, <laughs> on the on the front door of the Kremlin is you know a big sign saying "Under new management," because that's that's really what needs to happen here. So. I just thought that those two uh, uh those two things were um you know just just powerful messages on the on the right theme yeah another
0: um, question that we're getting asked uh as we do some uh you know media appearances and in, in other outlets is what is the u.s military learning from the below average performance to be polite about it of the russian military both on the ground and in the air and so Part of the answer is an article that's currently at USNI News written by John Grady, which is Commandant Marine Corps Berger Russian logistics failures in Ukraine should give pause to Taiwan invasion planners. So that's an interesting takeaway, which is logistics are harder than you think, Putin and Xi. And so, you know, be careful when you step off the line of departure. And also in the case of Taiwan, as we heard at the West Conference, we're starting to say overtly from PAC Fleet and indo and other places that we consider Taiwan something that we would defend in the, inca- in the case of a Chinese incursion. And that's something we kind of vacillated on in various ways through the years. And so that's another thing that's emerging as a function of Russia's inability to accomplish its mission goals in a short term since February 24th.
1: Yeah, 100% agree with that. And, you know, it was interesting before the Russians started the invasion, there was a lot of speculation about if they do this. And I think everybody, including Putin, expected that it would go much better for the Russians and that that would send a very strong signal to China that perhaps. Uh, Taiwan is uh, is an achievable goal, right? An invasion of Taiwan. But I think this right now, and as you said, uh, you know, Commandant Berger mentioned it and it's in USNI News. I just plugged it into the chat window. Um, you know, Berger saying, hey, um, you, uh, Beijing, you. this should give you pause because this is a lot harder, particularly against a proud country that uh, has a determination to uphold Democracy and its own uh, ability to determine its its future, and I think Taiwan has got that in spades, just like Ukraine is showing. Uh, so be careful what you wish for, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, which I think is really powerful. And and the other thing that I think the Chinese are realizing now, just as the world has, the the sanctions that are put on Russia have been much more powerful, uh, much more crushing in terms of the impact than anybody really expected. And so I think that's another. A uh, lesson that the Chinese will take from this is like, ooh, uh, you know, look what's happened to the value of the ruble. Look what's happened to, uh, you know, the ability to export from the Russian economy. Um, I, I, I think that this is probably in the long term kind of a stabilizing effect. Will have a stabilizing effect in Asia for all those reasons. But uh, anyway, it's it's just fascinating to watch this whole thing play out. It's horrific um and you know we'll just all continue to to watch and pray and also I, i think the us and and nato's support for uh you know for the ukrainian people has been pretty admirable so far
0: well i think the world order to your point has changed in a number of ways but not in the ways that putin imagined it would in fact maybe 180 out from the ways he imagined it would he thought he was going to create belarus jr in the form of ukraine and unite Russian peoples, but really all he's united is the rest of the world, save China, and he certainly has united NATO in ways that we couldn't have done on our own. So those unintended consequences are beneficial to the free world more than they've been to totalitarian authoritarian dictatorships. But as you said, we'll keep our eye on this, and Commandant Berger basically saying, hey, China, don't take the wrong things away from what's happening. This isn't a opportunity for a land grab. Note how hard this is and how much the Russian military misjudged their capabilities, you know, and so that a lot of other, and we can, it's probably a topic for another episode talking about procurement. We probably should get our duty procurement expert to talk about how we've done it in the last 10, 20 years versus how they've done it and what Putin's priorities have been with respect to procurement and how that yields a below average military here. Um, So, you know, a lot of people are asking me, hey, should we be more afraid of the Russian military? I'm like, I'm thinking we should not be afraid of them at all. In fact, we should redouble our confidence in how we've invested our, you know, program of record and our capabilities to include F-35, you know, for all of our criticism. And you and I sat down with the program manager some years ago. We're very aware of that program. But at the end of this effort, you know, American citizens, you get a capability and we're sort of looking like this capability is orders of magnitude superior to what the Russians have fielded in the intervening years, certainly on Putin's watch. So more to follow on on this and we'll keep the audience uh, abreast of what is happening in proceedings in USNI News as we go forward with podcasts. But as we pointed out before, March is the naval review issue we moved that from may to march this year and as you explained during the last episode we did that because this is 2021 in review and we want to make sure that you know we're not halfway through the year before we tee up 2021 in review so our guest today is looking at the marine corps side of the house
1: yeah our guest today is lieutenant colonel wes hammond u.s marine corps retired uh, Wes has written the Naval Review for many years, uh, and, and he just does a terrific job. And I think this year, as we asked Wes to uh, focus more on the analysis on what it all meant uh, for you know the Marine Corps in 2021, uh, he just did a superb job of that. His article, U.S. Marine Corps Review, is in the March issue, starts on pages uh, 74 and 75. So uh, Wes, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, it's very good
2: to be here. Thank you for having me. All
1: right, so uh, Wes, just thirty thousand foot perspective. You know, your your article uh, really was an analysis of the progress being made towards the Marine Corps force design twenty thirty. Uh, so, just for the audience, you know, what were the major uh, muscle movements in twenty twenty one towards uh, the the commandant's uh, you know force design?
2: I would say. Overall, the, the biggest thing was, um, you know, divestitures were the, the, the key thing, making room for uh, uh, what he needed to be doing to, to redesign the force for the future. And part of it was units getting rid of. And the biggest one, of course, was the, the removal, the final removal of the, the two active uh, uh, tank battalions, um, which probably uh, brought the biggest news. But there were other pieces to that, the bridging companies um, and some other assets, as well as, uh, you know, as you reduce some infantry units. Uh, so that you could uh, have more uh, room to uh, redesign and, and buy other things in the future, um, uh, including aircraft uh, units as those uh, infantry units were, were reduced. Um, uh, it also, you had a divestiture of commitments. Uh, the, the special mag went away, uh, which allowed, I think, the, the Marine Corps to look forward to uh, what it was going to do, or, or, you know, ha- have room for more training, more time to, to analyze and, and, and put together where they were headed for the future. Um, I, I think, uh, another piece of this was, you know, development began in earnest of some of the key capabilities, specifically long range strike capabilities. They, they did some major testing, integrating those with fleet ops as experiments. Uh, key one, of course, is the Navy Marine Corps, ex, uh, expeditionary ship, um, uh, interdiction system nemesis as it's called, which is a, a long range strike missile, um, Um, And then another key piece, and and this was partly a result of the accident that occurred with the AAV sinking the year before, was the strategic um, uh, uh, review of amphibious ops. Sometimes we call the Waldhauser uh, board uh, for the senior member, uh, retired general uh, uh, Waldhauser that's in charge of that. Uh, You began to see some uh, infantry battalion experiments beginning. That's really going to happen in earnest coming up this coming year. They're gonna have three sets of different types of uh, potential infantry battalions of the future. They're gonna experiment with those and see where they're going. Uh, And then the beginning is of the uh, the, the, uh, maritime uh, or the Marine Littoral Regiment, MLR, uh, was started. Uh, A lot of discussion, but challenges, I think, were some things uh, about funding, uh, especially funding for, you know, things that are in R&D, where they were headed, especially uh, uh, rocket and missile systems. You know, there was some concern about where the money was going to come from, though I understand uh, early, uh, you know, after the new year, uh, I think within the next last couple months, uh, there was another Congress did give back uh, 7.2 billion to the Marine Corps. But part of that uh, concern is, you know, where they're headed with amphibious forces. There's great utility, but also great concern about the vulnerability of the large amphibs. Uh, I think the uh, uh, the article on the uh, uh, the Navy side uh, in this month's proceedings talks a little bit about that, but then what the Marine Corps also wants is a, as a smaller, less vulnerable system, the law of the light, uh, uh, amphibious warship. Uh, and so there's a lot of movement about, you know, how many you are going to buy, what's the cost going to be and what, what, what are going to have to be given up? Um, and then I think, uh, you know, some Naval integration, some issues and challenges there were con- major concerns, but one of the things I think was a, a big, um, uh, uh, highlight, um, and it's more of a more just the Marine Corps. It, it's more than just the Marine Corps, even the naval services was a demonstration of uh, partner interoperability. Uh, and you saw the uh, uh, the the uh, F eighteen squadron, uh, the Marine F eighteen squadron that, or excuse me, F thirty five squadron that uh, uh, deployed with the Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and I think that was a high high, uh, you know, a key landmark of, of of the year because it was not just showing. That, the capability of that aircraft, capability of the Marine Corps, uh, but also the capability of, of U.S. naval forces and its ability to, to not only integrate, but interoperate with uh, allies and partners, which I think is party, uh, a big piece of the, of the future.
1: Well, That's a lot of stuff. I want to start with, you mentioned the, the Marine Littoral Regiment. And, uh, you know, so Describe what that is. You know, that's a, 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 it sounds to me like a pretty significant change in the uh, structure and the, the the manning, training, equipping, et cetera, of the Marine Corps. Um, what is an MLR? And, and you also talked about experimenting with different versions of it. Um, so, so talk about that. For right. A bit.
2: Yeah. And part of that, you know, is, is, you know, there's the Marine Logistics or Marine um um, the Infantry Battalion of the Future, I guess, is what it's called. Uh, and that will be a component particularly of that regiment. Um, and in some ways, the term regiment is, is a misnomer here because really it's a brigade um, because it's not the same types of combat arms. But beyond that, you know, and I think this is getting into, it's, you know, what it is is still in the experimental stage. So you got to be careful to say exactly what it's going to be. Uh, they're starting to look at that um, and do some experimentation. I know they stood up the other day, uh, the first, officially, the, the MLR out there in Hawaii, third Third Marines is becoming that. Um, but it the difficult part of it is going to be, you know, how much of it is going to be the fire's base? Uh, because it really, in many ways, to support the expeditionary advanced-based operations, the concept, one of the concepts that the Marine Corps is developing in order to support Uh, Naval operations and maneuver uh, for distributed maneuver operations, um, the the naval overall concept uh, for how we are are going to potentially fight in the future. Um, So, you know, how much of it needs to be fires based, long range missiles, and how much needs to be infantry uh, scouting um, and and, uh, supporting the the stand in forces and what they're supposed to do. So I I think it's still too early to say exactly what they're going to be. I know there's some some ideas and, and things that people are, are you know going to start with, but I, I think it's really going to be in the experimentation part of it. And I think it's important that we're moving from the wargaming part of, you know, understanding what the future is to really start looking at doing experimentation where you really, you know, wargaming gives you some insights. But you if, if you think that's going to give you the final answer, I think it, um, that's a mistake. Uh, You need need to do experimentations, exercises that really test uh, um, the
1: capabilities. Um, uh. Yeah, to that point and a a preview of coming attraction, we just put the April issue of uh, Proceedings to Bed, which is our expeditionary warfare issue. We've got an article coming. that's titled Amphibious Black, which is a description of a recent uh, exercise, Navy, Marine Corps uh, and Navy SEALs exercise. So there was an amphib, LPD. Uh, a DDG, uh, Marines, uh, and also Navy SEALs, doing you know essentially proving a concept of EABO, a little bit of guerrilla warfare where the U.S. side is is the practicing guerrilla warfare in an amphibious sort of uh, of uh, context. It's a pretty great article, and and it gets to your point about the experimentation that there's going to have to be, as you said, there's been war gaming, and now there's got to be a lot of experimentation trying things. I think trying things against a a dedicated op for, right, an opposition force that can show you where things are going well, but also things where where some of your weaknesses of these concepts are. So, uh, pretty pretty interesting. Uh, I'd like to move on a little bit. You also mentioned in your opening about the special magtafs, right? And so, if you if somebody read the Marine Corps Review over the past few years. Uh, you've had a lot of information about, you know, this special MAGTAF in CENTCOM and in Africa and different places. And those are those are going away or they've already gone away. They've all gone away. Yes. So, so. those are that's a pretty you know, each one of those is what, 1500 Marines? Uh,
2: usually, yeah, about that. Um, it, it depended on the size, especially Southcom could be different. Southcom wasn't a permanent one, uh, the one that supported Southcom. Uh, but both the AFRICOM and the uh, CENTCOM ones were uh permanent rotating forces, uh, usually forces in between amphibs. And I think this gets back to, you know, restarting the amphib uh, rotation a little bit more is going to be um, uh, what you'll see more replacement of that. But it also gives you some some bandwidth to uh, start um, doing more experimentation, exercises, training, looking at the future, too. So I, I think that's
1: um, a piece of this. Um, so if you bring those bring those forces home and they're not, you know, you're not constantly trying to rotate additional Marines out to these special MAGTAFs. It gives you more forces with which you can experiment, with which you can, you know, try those three different variants of the infantry battalion of the future. Do I, Am I getting that right? That's part of it, I,
2: I think. But also, you know, it just uh, part of it also is you're reducing the size of the force. So being able to, to just sustain that and do this uh, transformation just became an impossible, um, uh, you know, um, uh, requirement. So um, that, that that's a piece of it.
0: So Colonel, one of our regular viewers, uh, Tor Toroporco, asked a question that I was going to ask you here. Um, it just seems prima facie that when you say we're taking the tanks away, that, that would have been a big deal, certainly for tankers. Um, how does the divestiture of tanks impact the ability of the Marine Corps to execute combined arms doctrine? And what about the notion of direct fire support? I think there's a lot of questions there. I'm, I'm, I mean, <laughs>
2: had an interesting conversation with a, a friend of mine the other day, and, and let me just start by saying that, you know, I'm not, I fully understand and am committed to what the, the commandant's doing and the fact that something needed to change and we need to look at the future. I'm not sure I would have divested everything at this point um, before we finished all the experimentation exercises, but he's got a lot more insights. But one of the comments, one of my friends made the other day was the fact that um you know what we're seeing in, um, uh, you know, in Ukraine with the, you know, the the Russian tank columns getting just decimated. At least that's what we're seeing on YouTube, um, uh, and videos of of what's happening is just reinforces, you know, the communist decision. And I I, I say, well, wait a second. If that was true, you know, why wouldn't um, uh, why wouldn't we come to the same conclusion of, you know, the 1939-1940 the Finnish-Russia war where, you know, columns of Russian tank divisions were just decimated by small columns of, of Finnish uh, um, ski soldiers that just you know, stopped them for months and, and created a, a real problem for the, the Russians. Yet, you know, we saw some of the largest tank battles in the world following that that were, you know, very decisive and and and, and you know many people would show proved it. The same thing with the 73 war, when, you know, in the Yom Kippur War when uh the uh uh the Israeli tank forces were decimated in the beginning by SAGARS um you know what um uh you know and then they were able to, to you know, learn their lessons very quickly, which is, you know, this piece of adaptability, which is something else that I think is is important here that we need to think about. But this adaptability, they were able to des- describe and use tanks then for the rest of that three-week war that was very decisive. Um, and then, you know, following that, our tanks were were, were important for uh, the ground war in the, um, um, uh, you know, in, in the Gulf War. Now, I would say that, you know, how we use tanks. I mean, there's some obviously technical issues going on, you know, there's technologies changing. There was a requirement for greater uh, um, armor or some kind of defensive capabilities that was becoming expensive, Uh, maintaining it, um, maintaining the systems um, and how the Marine Corps trained and provided that expertise was becoming questionable. Um, And so those, those issues, I think were, we're all wrapped up in it, but I, I, I am concerned. I mean, you know, uh, I, I can tell you, you know, my father was um uh an infantry battalion uh commanding officer in in uh, uh in Vietnam. And uh his life was probably saved up around Kontiên uh by a small tank platoon that he had with his battalion when they were almost overrun by two uh, uh North Vietnamese regiments. Um so I, I I do have a strong personal feeling to what Uh, tanks can provide you as, uh, you know, when we landed in Somalia, I was with a Mew there. I was the battery commander for the artillery battery there. And uh, we didn't have, we were a very small Mew and we didn't have tanks with us, but we did have an MPF ship um, that was attached because we were such a small Mew and we offloaded the tanks uh, and used them for a short period. Most people say, Hey, we didn't have any, you know, armor in, in Somalia. Well, in the first month we did, and we used the tanks. And as I, uh, you know, commented to people, just when we left somebody said oh we don't need tanks because we we never use them and i my comment was nobody ever needs a tank until they need a tank so.
1: <laughs> that's a great point um to the i, I want to step back for a second because uh all of this is sort of headed towards a, a concept that's been in uh in our pages and in many other places uh over the last two years or so expeditionary advanced base operations, which is a Marine Corps concept that is geared towards really a fight in the Western Pacific uh, in and among islands uh, in the South China sea uh, around uh, Taiwan, if you will. Um, It's geared towards, you know, small mobile detachments uh, of Marines that can go ashore. As you, you, you mentioned the nemesis system, which includes the, uh, the naval strike missile in a, uh, uh, in a, in a format, uh, with a launcher that, uh, you know, you take it off of a ship and you can, you know, put it ashore and you can move it around and you can use, uh, you know, targeting data and, and the Marines can actually reach out with an anti-ship uh, killer missile. Um, there's a lot of debate in our pages about, is that doable? Is it logistically supportable? Is it, Uh, Are are those units likely to go ashore in places where they're going to be stealthy enough that the Chinese can't find them? Uh, How do you reduce the signature? So there's an ongoing debate and it's coming, you know, in upcoming issues of the magazine, including the April issue. Uh, So what what are you hearing about EABO and about the ability for the Marine Corps to operate in such small units Uh, in a stealthy manner, but also in a way that is small enough, but also powerful enough to have an impact on the potential adversary China in this case? Um, You know,
2: I actually worked with Art Corbett, uh, who passed away a year or so ago, um, uh, and was kind of the chief writer of that. uh, Art and I used to have a lot of conversations sitting down talking about EABO. Um, I I brought some historic perspective to that. I, I think, you know, there's if you look at the the, the idea of how um, advanced base operations have have evolved from Guantanamo Bay in 1898, which I think is a landmark thing that probably deserves more study, and then how it advanced as as technology and capabilities changed over the years, this is just a continuation of that. Uh, so I don't think it's it's that revolutionary in many ways. Um, it's uh, it provides um, capabilities, you know, using littoral uh, terrain to support the fleet for both sea control and power projection um, is always fundamental to a, a naval a full maritime operation. Um, so I think it, it, it's a piece of that, but I think there's a couple things. I think um, it, it, part of it gets into how, and this goes back to the direct fire as well as indirect fires. I mean, um, which is another concern, indirect fires for support of the forces ashore um, is a concern of mine, um, and I think many others, uh, and finding that balance. Um, it's also the concern of how much forces do you need to support and provide that um, uh, security of those those forces ashore, as well as ensure their mobility between islands. And I would say it's not just the first island chain. It gets back into uh, the breadth of it deep in, deeper into the second island chain and perhaps even behind that uh, to a degree that we need to be very much focused on and concerned about and provide that um that depth to the uh the operating area um I, I would also say that um so i, I, I think you know I, i'm concerned that giving up as much indirect fire support uh to provide um a, a capability to to halt is something that needs to really be experimented very closely and under, uh, understanding you know part of the uh uh the Uh, testing that's been going on is this idea of uh, the organic precision fires, which essentially like uh, kamikaze UAVs that we saw in the Abderzizan Armenia fight that people took a lot of um, uh, lessons from, which I I always think you need to be very careful. Like I said about, you know, what we're seeing in the tank battalions or the tank units columns in, in Ukraine, be careful, you know, looking at you know, looking back and, and studying things, you come up with some different conclusions once you uh, analyze what the real reasons are. And I think the same thing when we look at you know how effective can you give the mass you need? Can you give the uh, the time on targets? The precision fires can those um, be achieved um, with this organic precision fires? And that's a, a, a question mark. Well, now I think with the survivability of the of the tanks, I mean of the uh, of those forces, EABL. Uh, mobility is going to be the key part of this. And so lightening up is important, but I, I would say that, uh, you know, having some mobile mobile, mobile, uh, mobile, uh, armor is also going to be, and there's a whole number of ways. I think you can look at how you reduce your, uh, vulnerabilities, not just lightness and mobility. And, and you, th- you have to really have a combination of those. Um, the other piece of this whole thing is, uh, th- there's two other pieces, I think the, uh, Putting together the communications and the, the networks so that it's not just, you know, the, the, that fire system and sensor system is fully integrated with the whole naval force. That's going to be difficult and that's going to be a, a challenge, but I think it's it's solvable. Uh, the other piece is logistics. And, you know, I, I, I've written quite a bit about logistics. I think if you recall back in 2017, I submitted that essay for the uh, uh, CNO's uh essay contest talking about mobile uh, logistics in, in a sea control uh, naval maneuver, maneuver warfare uh, type operation and, and showing what, you know, if we look at the Second World War and uh, naval operations in the Pacific, we look at, you know, we look at these, you know, very effective carrier battle groups, uh, very effective um, amphibious forces, very effective submarine forces. But if you look at that mobile logistics, you know, both, you know, and there's really three pieces of it. There was things ashore that Seabees put in, there was the the uh, tenders and repair ships and, and floating dry docks that followed the fleet in, in protected areas. And then by the end of the war, you had a really advanced um, uh, combat logistics force or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, underway replenishment capability that we would follow and, and uh, resupply from those, those uh, fo- uh, uh, you know, uh, advanced bases that were populated with the tenders and supply ships and other things, uh, as well as um, uh, then, you know, stay close to the uh, the, the battle forces. Um, that capability, I think, is important. And, and then I think that's what, you know, you, you talk about logistics and what um, the commandant said the other day about uh, how much the, the Chinese are learning. Now, the Chinese learned very quickly. Um, you know, if we look back at, you know, the Renaissance and what the Chinese uh, PLA has done since, you um, uh, the Gulf War, they really took those lessons and, and, uh, and and you know, changed a lot of their force to, to address those. Uh, I think, you know, Mick Ryan's book that just came out the other day that was just published by the Naval Institute really talks about how they're looking at the future, but it's based on their understanding of not only their culture of how they fight, but also looking at how we fight. So um, yes, I think it will give pause to them, but um, they're going to advance, um, you know, don't be surprised if they 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 figure this out fairly quickly. For us, I think logistics needs to really focus on, you know, a number of ways. Understand that you're going to take casualties, but I think it's it's a solvable problem with pre-positioning, uh, unmanned systems, um, a whole number of capabilities that you can uh, um, ensure that you uh, have available.
0: Well, so to go back to your point about UAVs, particularly you're talking about the Switchblade. Uh, UAVs that are, you know, sort of the flavor of the month right now. You make right. a good point about acquisition priorities and everybody being all in. We saw this during the post 9-11 wars with MRAPs. You know, I think in hindsight, although Secretary Gates championed this as a proof that with the right focus and lawmakers support, you can rapidly field a capability but yeah. when I went to Afghanistan and I was embedded with the 101st Airborne, they were like, we have too many of these things, right. you know, and then you can see how much we left there when we pulled out, you know. So if we flood the zone with, you know, I'm, you know, again, Bill and I were talking about current events and, and actually comment on uh, Berger's point that he is saying, hey, China should take pause if they're thinking about taking Ukraine because of logistics and you know, what are the takeaways that we're learning from the Russian lack of an advance here? As you've said, logistics is a big one, right? So we want to make sure, to your point, that we're learning the right lessons and that everybody doesn't start start hyperventilating. And this is what you hear from the chattering class. And this is why every once in a while we should probably just turn the TV off and stop looking at Twitter because everybody's all in on, you know, they need MiG-29s. And now they need Switchblade you know, UAVs and Patriot missiles, and you know all those sort of things. It could be true for the tactical situation that is 24 hours, but in terms of our focus and our procurement priorities, we need to make sure we're looking both tactically and strategic, which is right. kind of your point.
2: Yeah, and I've had
0: this discussion with as
2: a uh, uh, Australian colonel that I've had a little discussion with, and, and one of the points he makes, and I, I agree with him, is the, the idea that you know a good logistics system. <laughs> is a huge deterrent because it really tells somebody that even if you have all these other capabilities, you've got the staying power um, that he's got to be very concerned about. And so uh, we need to think about that too. And that's, uh, you know, there's an article in this month's uh, history magazine, Naval History Magazine by Peter Hoare, that talks about um, uh, the Falklands and the logistics capability from the Ascension Island that he was in charge of. Um, And I've got some questions out to him about, you you know, one of the questions is, what were they going to do after mid-June? You know, uh, Admiral Woodward is, uh, uh, yeah, Woodward um, uh, 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 makes the comment that, you know, by mid-June, he was going to have to pull the fleet back because they were just going to be torn apart. Well, how do we create that sustainability of naval maneuver fighting? Because, you know, really for 70 years, we haven't done naval maneuver fighting. We've done what Bob Work calls, you know, naval movement, uh, where we've, you had the, the capacity of having naval supremacy that allows us to move forces across, you know, transatlantic or transoceanic uh, areas in order to, you know, project power on the Eurasian mainland. Um, now we're, we're talking about having to fight for that sea control first. And, and, you know, when you have a force that's been optimized for generations, um, not to have to worry about those problems. And it's, logistics is probably the biggest one. Um, it, it creates some, some well, cultural issues, because you're not talking about assumptions anymore. They've become so deeply embedded, their presumptions, you don't even realize you, you think about.
1: That's a great point. You know, we've talked a lot about the optimized fleet response plan, right, which really became a leaned out uh, business plan for projecting, you know, naval power into CENTCOM. I mean, you know, it, it was we're going to schedule the ship's maintenance, we schedule the deployments, this is when they deploy, this is uh, exactly how many logistics ships you need to keep one or two carriers deployed to CENTCOM. I I mean, that was a very, very, uh, it was a business plan, if you will, for keeping a certain amount of naval power for deployed in CENTCOM to project power into Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 odd years. But now, yeah, to your point, you're gonna to have to fight for sea control. You're gonna to have to fight to project that uh force, but also then to protect uh the logistics trail that will that will support it, right? And that's that and is And you have to have that logistics
2: difference. trail built, I mean, or at least have the capacity to build it quickly. And the yeah. other piece, I mean, you talk about you know optimizing a force for a rotational uh naval uh, you know, presence capability is much different than DMO, where you um essentially are gonna to have to you know, be able to fairly quickly project 80, 90% of the fleet forward. Um, and that creates all kinds of problems.
1: And they're not going to be concentrated as a carrier strike group, right? So right. with a carrier strike group and, a, and an oiler, uh, you can have all of your ships within 50 or hundred miles of each other. So when it's time to, to gas them up, they come in. But in distributed maritime operations, they, you know, what what is currently a carrier strike group in terms of assets, they might be dispersed hundreds of miles. And so the logistics plan just to just to keep them all fueled up becomes much more difficult. Right. right. And to keep them dispersed so they're that they're not a concentrated target. That's a that's a difficult challenge. Yeah. I want to I want to get on.
0: Well, bit. Be, before we before okay. we leave that point, just in sure. terms of the counter counterpoint to. Because I don't think anybody beats us up as well as we beat up ourselves with respect to these things. So as we look at Brand X, whether it's Russia or China, again, what's emerging is we are, meaning the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps, have always been an expeditionary force. We can do over the horizon. I'm not so sure in the years since the fall of the the wall that the Russians have attended to their capability of being an over-the-horizon Navy. And I think particularly... I was on deployment as a department head in 1995 aboard the USS America, and the Kuznetsov deployed for the first time ever, and they came into the Med and immediately broke down off the coast of Tunisia. And if you look at the history of that ship of the line, it has never really done anything of consequence for all of the fanfare and everything else. So as you look at the state of their military currently as demonstrated in Ukraine, and certainly the associated naval assets, like the amphibs that are hanging off of Odessa, still have not come ashore. There's okay. some question, as you talk to Sam Legron and others, who know a thing or two about their order of battle as to how lethal these are, how ready these are. And same with China. China does not have a constant forward presence. They're c- concerned about their hemisphere, their, you know, the the island chains, the first island chain, the second island chain. We've talked about this for, you know, at, at length on the podcast, and Bill has teed this up in the pages of Proceedings uh, you know, for for years. So I, I know we have work to do, but I think relative to the opposition, we're kind of in a good place with how we operate now. And yes, copy that distributed lethality increases the aperture of what you've got to support. Um, but I think we're, I think what we're learning here, and this is to comment on Berger's point, uh, is that maybe we're more ready than we thought. Now it doesn't mean slash the defense budget or stop doing bilateral exercises or et cetera, et cetera. But um, I, I think some of the lessons that we're learning here out of out of this war is NATO isn't as hosed up as we thought. You know, and certainly our procurement priorities maybe have been okay and on target. And the way we do training and reporting and everything else is, you know, the military is being accused of being woke and all these other things. I, I think I think we're we're kind of by and large, uh, it, ready for the threat. Uh, if I make one more point, you
2: uh, know, uh, I just wanted—I I would agree on a lot of that. Um, we can beat ourselves up a lot, but one issue I, I, I do probably want to touch on a little bit is this idea of naval integration and what it means, um, because it's both logistics, it's both this command and control, and and the webbing together of weapons, sensors, and um, uh, communications, and that's probably. I, I do have some concern about that. And and it was interesting. I I when this first came out, when the idea of uh EABO and and uh, well force design 2030, the, the Commandant's uh design uh priorities came out, and and obviously naval integration was a big piece of this. I said to a, a friend of mine, how are we gonna do this? And he's he's works over in the Pentagon uh in policy. But we were together in the strategic initiatives group at Headquarters Marine Corps uh years ago. And he said, Wes, it's just like you know, your thesis on um, uh, you know, counter battery from the sea. Um, so let me explain that a little bit. So years ago, when I was at Monterey, uh, I did I was in the electronic warfare systems engineering curriculum, and I did a my thesis on how to modify the Spy One radar to do the same thing as our counter battery radars. They're both phased array radars, and part of that came from that landing in Somalia, where I, you know, we were asked what do we need before we landed, and I said, hey, this is a lot like Beirut. You know, as the battery commander, I'd like to have the radar, uh, the counter battery radar, the Q36 that we have uh, brought. Well, we don't bring it on float, but um, so they were going to send it out. So it was, took three weeks uh, before it finally arrived. And the whole time I'm, I'm looking out at the ships at sea and I go, why can't I use that ship's radar? Because it's, you know, a phased array." Long story short, I did my thesis. It was fairly easy. 19, So I did that in 96, 99. The Navy tested it. Uh, and the, you know, the, the test off of Camp Lejeune, live fire test with the USS Higgins went extremely well. Um, they had a, uh, I think uh, they, they tracked all but one round. Um, and even uh, they were firing both uh, ashore. They were firing both 155 uh, artillery and 81 mortars. Um, and they got a CEP, a, a circular air probability for where the, 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 uh, firing positions were of less than six or 16 meters, I think was what they came out to. So very small, very accurate. Um, and and could have been used. Um, what, um, so, so, I, you know, back to where my, my friend was, you know, a, f- a few years ago. And he says, well, it's just like your thesis, you know, this thing. I said, yeah, but since 1999, the Navy hasn't spent a dollar on that. And even though they said at the time, it was only going to be about a $2 million dollar um uh, upgrade to the radar, because it's only software that had to change, uh, we haven't done anything. And that's even even after that, you had a requirement that came in from uh, uh, Naval Forces Korea uh, that said, hey, this is a, a a capability we really need. But still, so I, I guess there is some concern I have about where we're headed with naval integration and how we're going to put this all together if we haven't even done some some easy things that we could have done um that would have been just even force protection, much less, um, you know, strike and and uh, uh, more, uh, you know, things that we're more concerned about now
1: if we still haven't done those. No, that's a great point. A great, great story. Uh, and sorry to hear that the Navy hasn't upgraded ages to, to be able to do that capability. It sounds like a kind of a no brainer. Um, to the point about this is a, another follow-on with uh, naval integration there's a lot of talk about the light amphibious warship and you mentioned it in your opening remarks and you know the design uh, process is uh, I think has begun but what it's going to look like and how many we're going to build and how many we can afford uh, and I'm curious is that envisioned as something that the Marine Corps owns or is it a Navy? capability like the LCACs are that we trans, you know, that's a ship to shore connector that the Navy owns that, that moves Marines. I think um, it's going to still stay as a Navy asset uh, for a lot of reasons. I think just, you
2: know, I mean, as I mentioned, you know, part of the arguments for, you know, divesting of the tanks was keeping that, um, you know, having the right level of of, um, uh, expertise, uh, you know, (laughs) I think even more for a ship like this is, is even more uh, apparent than, than even tanks were. So I, just for that reason, I think, you know, even with the problems we have with AAVs and ACVs, um, you know, we, I, I don't, I don't see the Marine Corps going to uh, um, taking charge of a, a, a uh, larger ship. I would probably say that I would see, you know, that these part of it, the, um, and there's some discussion about this, How the larger amphibs are going to be used um, may not just be as dedicated towards the Marine Corps as they have been in the past. I mean, they bring a lot of capabilities like medical capabilities are going to be important uh, that are mobile, uh, but also the use of them for the unmanned systems um, across the fleet, not just the Marine Corps, um, is probably something that will be uh, more and more experimented with.
1: Yeah, that's a a really interesting point. And, you know, a lot of people have said, well, you know, uh, aircraft carriers, uh, you know, the the, the Chinese have got this carrier killer missile. Now they've got two of them, the DF-21D and also the DF-26, which can reach even farther out to sea. Uh, And so maybe we just need these light, you know, the light carriers, the lightning carriers, uh, which are smaller, more America class uh, type ships. Uh, But I can tell you from an intelligence perspective of finding a, a ship at sea and targeting it, uh, there's very little difference between finding a Ford-class carrier at, at sea, which is you know a little over a thousand feet long, and finding a ship that's 800 feet long. Both have big flat decks. If the Chinese can find one, they can probably find the other. So um, those those big amphibs, uh, to your point, will probably need to be uh, perhaps further back, uh, but projecting uh, fires or projecting ISR capability further forward um you know, then, than then than they currently, you know, probably do in practice. Uh, what are you hearing on the, on the back to the light amphibious warship? What are you hearing about the timeline for, you know, getting the design, uh, requirements and then actually contracting? And when will we start to, you know, bend steel for those things?
2: I, I think they're looking, uh, gosh, I, I don't have it in front of me. Um, it's still say. a few years away, though. Yeah, it's, it is. And it, it, just like anything, I mean, you know, Ward talked a little bit about the acquisition process, and I have a little bit of experience with it. Um, you know, you can do things quickly, um, but, you know, uh, lots of times when you do that, you, you got to accept the mistakes and, and the waste that you're going uh, um, uh, to inherent in that. And sometimes people are, are willing to do that. I think, as you point out, early on in, in OIF1 or OIF2, uh, you know, after we, we became engaged in Iraq, um, Congress was more than willing to accept a lot of waste. Now, so questions came later about, you know, why would we do this? Why would we do that? But part of it was because, you know, there was a process and people accepted it at the time and, and didn't ask a lot of questions. So, uh, you know, uh, we could see a lot of things change if, if this war becomes larger in, in Europe. And a lot of people's mindsets change about how, how we're going to move forward. I always look back at, you know, in, in World War II. You know, uh before World War II, the US Navy, um uh naval forces, you know, we were slowly increasing. But if you look at like the week after uh France falls and Congress goes back into session, and like a week or two later, you you increased the Navy by 70 in, percent in a vote. So, you yeah. know, the war had already begun a year before that, when or let's about nine months before that. And then in mid-July, suddenly, you know, they, they realize this is really important and big. And so uh, we could see it. You know, It depends how long things go, what happens, how much destruction occurs, how other, uh, you know, how China uh, reacts to in the end.
1: Uh, so uh, there's some things I, I, I could see happen here. Great points. Uh, Wes, we're, we're running close on time here. Just one more question for you, mm-hmm. uh, you know project out a year from now the March 2023 issue that reviews 2022 for the Marine Corps what do you think what do you think the big things will will be will there be it's just a continuation of of what you've described in in this year's issue or do, are there some certain you know perspectives or or you know big movements that you expect to see in the Marine Corps uh for the, the remainder of 2022
2: well I think I left it um at the end of 2021 with the, the issue of money. Um, and which kind of gets back to what i just talked about you know uh, what happens um you know uh, in the current conflict that's going on in europe um i think that could have a big you know uh, uh, you know impact on this uh, especially if we see more of stab- saber rattling in, in the pacific too uh somebody taking advantage of that and i think um you know our allies you know showing uh, a lot more um uh, dedication to, to what their responsibilities are probably will help drive us to do more. Um, so I, I think that could be a piece of it. Um, so we'll have, wait and see. I think the F-35 decision from the Commandant, where he stands on where those squadrons are, is probably a big piece that will come out. Um, I, I also think, you know, what happens during these initial tests of the infantry battalions and uh, some ideas of where this uh, um, Marine Littoral Regiment's going. Um, all those pieces, I think, are, are probably, I mean, those are somewhat continuations, and I anticipate those. Um, some other things. Um, I, I think there's also going to be some some look now at, you know, part of the uh, EAB uh, shedding and, and uh, the requirements of it, um, kind of, um, I, I think there's some questioning going on about how to ensure that we are able to achieve access when it's it's, it's really going to be challenged, um, and so I think there's going to be some really uh, discussions in looking at that. I'm, I'm really waiting to see, uh, since it still hasn't come out, that amphibious uh, um, uh, study, uh, the Wild Hazard Board. I, I'd really like to see what it, it, its results are.
1: Well, those are great previews. Uh, and thank you again for being on the show. Our guest has been Lieutenant Colonel Wes Hammond, U.S. Marine Corps retired. He's the author the perennial author of our Marine Corps in Review and in the March issue of Proceedings this year, it starts on page 74, 75, a really great recap of uh, what 2021 meant for the Marine Corps. Wes, thanks again. You're welcome. Thanks, you. Okay, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, our next episode will be on Monday with a an active duty Marine uh, uh, Major Schwartz, who's got an article coming up in the uh, the April issue of the magazine, uh, titled "Marines Need Light Infantry, Not Less," which is uh, just a great uh, a, another great article, uh, very very much to the point of what we've been talking about today. So we'll uh, we'll see you on uh, on Monday next week. Until then, uh, remember victory begins at the Naval Institute,
0: and we'll remind you that this and every podcast is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. For more about membership, go to usni.org slash join.